Have you noticed that there's a lot fewer people in church? Where'd they all go? Do you think they're coming back? I don't. You see, I started to notice a pattern in my conversations with other Catholic leaders in those first few weeks of the pandemic. I would be on a Zoom with a colleague or a pastor or a parish volunteer, and the conversation would go something like this. They would say, well, when things go back to normal and everybody comes back, I mean, gosh, everybody's going to come back, right? We should definitely, and the conversation would continue. But there was this ever so subtle point. This little thought bubble tucked in their longer sentence. This slight acknowledgement of a pit in their stomach. A giant what if. What if they don't come back? Now, I'll admit it wasn't just with others that I had this conversation. When my family made its first trip back to physical mass, we donned our stylish masks. We marched along the appointed arrows to our assigned pews. And I looked out over a cavernous church to see just a few of my fellow parishioners dotting the pews. My seven-year-old, like most seven-year-olds, can't yet control the volume of his voice. So he tugged on my shirt and he whispered, not so quietly, Dad, Dad, where's everyone else? When's everyone else coming back? It was the first time that I blatantly lied to my son because I had that same pit in my stomach. And I asked myself a question that I'll ask you today, which is, what if they don't come back? Now, I wanna say from the get-go, I wanna be wrong. I hope and pray that I am wrong, but what I know, and more importantly, what I feel, tells me they're not coming back. Not all of them, not by a long shot. And I think you know it too. I think we all know it. I've been studying the practices and beliefs of mass-going Catholics for the last decade. And about a third of us would say we have been practicing really a faith of habit. And the habit's been broken. We know the staggering statistics of disaffiliation among millennials and Gen Z. <laughs> Seven months ago, this talk was going to be describing this giant tsunami of disengagement trends that was about to wash over us. Well, I guess I was wrong. What I was predicting was going to take 10 years may now only take two. So I ask you again, so what? So what if they don't come back? Now, I don't ask that question with callous disregard for the consequences. The implications of upwards of a third of our people not coming back to church are significant. It will radically change the landscape of the church. It will affect every ministry in every parish and every diocese. It's already exacerbating every wound, every weakness in our fragile system. And most gravely, souls are at stake. No, I'm, I'm well aware of the consequences. And I think it's for that reason that those leaders, myself especially, wanted to tuck that question deep in that longer sentence. Because to ask the question begs a series of other questions altogether. More important, more existential questions. 
more terrifying questions than we've ever been forced to answer before. You see, so often we meet questions at their surface and we don't explore their underlying power. In trying to wrestle with this giant what if, I think we first need to name the fear that prevents us from even asking the question out loud. Second, I think we need to ask the question differently. And third, I think we all need to reflect on our answer. So let's go there. Let's name the fear. What if they don't come back? One of the strategies that's often used to help people who are struggling with anxiety is to guide them calmly to the bottom of their what-ifs, to play worst-case scenario, to give them a series of if-then statements that ultimately help them to realize that they still have choices, they still have support, they still have a future, even in the midst of their worst-imagined possibility. Well, I can't and I won't speak for you. But in my darkest sleepless nights during this pandemic, I noticed an interesting pattern in the way I responded to that exercise. Frankly, it was a lot about me. One night it looked like this. So what if they don't come back? Well, if they don't come back, then churches won't have any money. And then, well, if churches don't have any money, then they'll have to close. And then, well, if churches close, they won't have any need of my ministry. And then, well, I'll be out of a job. Stop. Did you count? It only took two if-thens for it to be about me. For it to be about self-preservation. I dare say the fear that lies in the depth of this question does not primarily concern itself with care for souls, but with care for our own comfort. Because if we ask it too loudly or too frequently, we might have to recognize that we can't remain in the status quo. That instead of choosing to change, we actually might be forced to change. What are the if-then statements for you if they don't come back? Perhaps it's that your priesthood has been so defined by events, and now if we can't do events, well, how do you do priesthood? Maybe your job at the parish or the diocese is in jeopardy. What will you do next? Maybe it's this ministry that you have poured your whole life into that can't continue, at least not the way that it did. What happens to all that sweat equity? Or perhaps it's your beloved church where you were married, where you had your children baptized, where you mourned a loved one. What if it closes its doors forever? What if you have to go somewhere else? I think it's okay to ask the question, what if they don't come back? We need to name the fear. But then we need to ask the question differently. What if Jesus said to us, that he would build his church and the gates of hell would never prevail against it. Oh wait, he did. Now, to be sure, he didn't say how many parishes there would be, uh, nor did he definitively say what priesthood would look like. And I'm pretty sure he didn't mention anything about mass times or diocesan departments. But he did give us a range of size. 
really two ends of a spectrum. On the one hand, where two or three are gathered in my name, there so am I. And on the other hand, our big, hairy, audacious goal, go and make disciples of all nations. So you could say he gave us a little margin of error. <laughs> we can name the fear, but we need to ask the question differently. So often leadership is about asking the right questions. And so often as a church, I'm afraid we ask the wrong ones. We ask what if to protect instead of progress. We ask what if to mitigate risk instead of stimulate possibility. What if we offend someone? What if no one shows up? What if the media shows up? What if we close? What if they leave? My friends, these are perfectly logical, responsible, pragmatic questions. Questions we would be insane not to ask, except that we're Christians. So often we ask questions as if we're the audience and not the actor. We ask questions that deny the incredible potential that the Lord has been placed in each one of us. Just listen to the passiveness of the question. What if they don't come back? Where do we even find ourselves in that question? Worst of all, we ask questions as if salvation history begins and ends with us. We ask what if, as if the foundational, fundamental, kirgamatic truth of our identity isn't even a factor. We ask what if, as if the victory hasn't already been won. But what if? What if we chose to lead with different what ifs? What if they don't come back? Same words, different spirit, the Holy Spirit. Our first Holy Father, St. Peter, exhorts us to always have a reason ready for our hope. We are a people who believe that nothing is impossible with God. Our Holy Father today reminds us that no one can go into battle unless he is convinced of victory beforehand. We know victory has already been won. We know the reason for our hope. We are people who ask, what if, not with fear, but with amazement in God's power and goodness. You know, in the early days of the pandemic, when public mass was still not an option, I know a pastor who was struggling to reach out to his people. And someone on his team asked, what if we did a drive-by blessing for Mother's Day? Well, then the other what ifs started flying. What if it causes a traffic jam? What if people want to get out of their cars and talk to each other? <laughs> Begrudgingly, the pastor agreed. And 347 cars later, he was in tears. Moreover, when public mass was able to resume in this parish, a woman came up to him after mass and she said, Father, do you know I was stuck in that Mother's Day car line for 20 minutes when all I wanted to do was drive through Dunkin' Donuts? <laughs> As he began to apologize, she put her hand up and said, Father, those 20 minutes told me that I was missing something. It reminded me that I needed to come back to something. What if? What if we called every person in our parish and offered to pray with them? Some parishes that have are seeing increases in their offertory without ever asking for a cent. More importantly, 
They're saying the people who are making those calls are saying that they're some of the most powerful conversations that they've ever had in their ministry and that they've learned more about these people who've lived in their parish for 20 years in 20 minutes. What if we didn't have to celebrate four masses on a Sunday? What could we do with that time instead? Priests who are leading Eucharistic processions or meeting their parishioners in parking lots, yeah, they're tired. But many are saying it's the most exhilarating time of their priesthood. What if we didn't have to coordinate the religious education schedule? How could we help our parents differently? We can't deny that we've needed a dramatic paradigm shift in how we equip the domestic church to pass along the faith to the next generation. There's no better time than now. What if we were able to move a tech-ignorant church to become a church that's, I don't know, at least semi-comfortable with technology? We did that. We did that. Parishes that couldn't send an email now know how to live stream. Grandmothers are leading the rosary over Zoom. And even my own mother knows how to take herself off a of mute. Sometimes. We did that in six months. Six months. What does that teach us about the tremendous opportunities that still lie in front of us? But what if things don't go back to normal? Oh, my friends, that's an easy one. We don't want to go back to normal. Could we talk about normal for a minute? Normal was a 30-year sacramental freefall. Normal was 70% of our people not practicing a faith at all. Normal was 5% of us doing all of the volunteering. No, we could barely afford normal before we wanted to go back to it. Now, sure, we don't want to wear masks forever. We want our children playing in their, with their friends, learning in their schools. We don't want people to be afraid. But if we're honest, and we think back to when it was normal, was it even close to what God was calling us to? What if we didn't go back? What if we kept going forward? What could forward look like? What if instead of tracking depressing downward trends, we tracked and plotted new gains, no matter how small or insignificant? You know, it has always struck me that the early church had one huge advantage over us. They had nothing to lose but their lives. Think about it. Success stories, the stories of saints, are usually people who started with nothing, but certainly weren't afraid to lose everything. But what if we lose everything? What are you afraid to lose? I think we have to be ready to answer that question the same way the early church did. Because our answer is the same as the early church. We can't lose everything. Because as disciples, our real everything, our real everything transcends all time, all space, conquers all illness, even death. That's our real everything. So why not ask what if? And why not answer it with more possibility? What if we wrote a new story? Salvation history certainly began before us and will extend countless generations beyond us. We're not even a chapter in this great epic. Maybe we get a sentence. 
But this is our sentence. Now, we might want to ask the Lord why he gave us this sentence. But like we have done with those who have come before us, others one day will read our sentence and they too will ask, what if? What if I lived during that pandemic? What if I faced their challenges? What if I had their mission? What do we want them to read in our sentence? What about if they read it about a time when we took risks for the sake of the gospel? What if they read about a time defined by what Francis says is a missionary impulse capable of transforming everything? What if they read about a time when we deployed new means and new methods like St. John Paul II called us to employ in order to bring about a new springtime of evangelization? What if the story we write included each and every one of us bringing one person back? Just one. And what if we didn't stop there? What if it continued with each one of us bringing one person for the first time? My friends, what if, what if there was a moment where the whole world was wondering at the very same time where to find hope? What if there was a moment where the whole world was unsure of what to believe? where to find truth? What if there was a moment when schedules were put on hold, habits were broken, a moment when people were desperate for real relationship, real presence? Man, wouldn't that be a tremendous opportunity if we had something to offer? What if we had something to offer? The most important question is not What if they don't come back? The most important question is, what if God is calling me to something greater? We know he is. So maybe the real most important question is, how will I respond? Thank you.